This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours. We're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was written in the mid-60s of the first century to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ, back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today to talk about Hebrews chapter 7 is Dr. Dennis Johnson, professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's a longtime student of the book of Hebrews and active pastor and author of commentaries on the books of Acts and the Revelation. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 7, and we're working today on the section from verse 11 through verse 17. There's plenty there to keep us occupied for this episode. And verse 11 says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Well, let's start to unpack this and try to figure out where the author is taking us here in this section of Hebrews. First of all, what does he mean when he says perfection? He uses an interesting noun there, teleosis. How is this question of perfection, as the ESV has it, relevant to the question of apostasy? Well, the way the preacher to the Hebrews uses the term and the concept of perfection really focuses on the theme of qualification, consecration for access into the presence of God. He's really deriving it, at least in part, using that particular term, because this is a term that appeared in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, and I think once more in Numbers, Exodus 29, it's all over the place, that focus on the priest having his hands filled, is really the term that's used there, probably a reference to the fact that now he can bring a sacrifice into the presence of God, and it's a way of describing the priest being cleansed, ritually made acceptable to enter into the presence of God. And here, of course, the preacher is saying the Aaronic priests could not really perfect, consecrate, purify the people of God to be able to stand in the presence of God for worship. He says that's implied in the fact that there's this psalm that appears, Psalm 110, that speaks of a different kind of priesthood. It implies, therefore, that the Aaronic priests need to be replaced by something, someone, infinitely superior to them in this matter of bringing us into the very presence of God. Why was the Levitical priesthood inherently unable to bring this kind of perfection and consecration? What was defective about their ministry? That is a great question. I think, actually, Hebrews would answer that with three types of answers. One is uh, certainly the point that he's going to make later on when he speaks in chapter 10 of the fact that the blood of bulls and goats cannot really wash away the guilt of sin. They serve as an external ceremonial cleansing ritual, but they can't get to the conscience. They can't get to the issue of our guilt against sin, and therefore they have to be repeated over and over again. I, I know I'm running ahead to chapter 10, but that certainly is part of the answer. In this text, he's going to say also that they couldn't do that 
that because the priests themselves were prevented by death from continuing in office. And, and later on in this chapter, he's going to make that point that the priest in the order of Melchizedek holds his priesthood forever, eternally, whereas they were always prevented by death and there had to be a new high priest appointed as well. And then I think the third answer that the preacher to the Hebrews would offer is that they were only ministering in an earthly copy of the real sanctuary, the place that we really want to gain access, which is in heaven. Whereas Jesus' priesthood, he's coming, he has come now into the presence of God. He's at the Father's right hand. He's come as our forerunner, as we have talked about in an earlier episode. And so he's bringing us into that heavenly reality by faith now. And therefore, again, that theme of access into the superior original sanctuary is also uh, one thing that the the Aaronic priest could not do, which now our priest, Jesus, has done for us. So there was a built-in obsolescence to the Levitical ministry. There's a built-in imperfection in the strictest sense that in which Hebrews means it to the Levitical ministry. And there's a kind of earthiness, earthboundness to it. And Jesus comes, or another priest is going to come, and bring a kind of priesthood that is truly real, more real. It's a physical, actual, not ethereal priesthood, but a priesthood that connects us to the reality to which Leviticus was only pointing in a very shadowy way. Yes, exactly. And he goes in a direction that we might not expect I remember when I first really encountered this section of Hebrews in a serious way, listening to you lecture on Hebrews, lo, those many years ago. In verse 12, he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. If we were writing that, we might not have written that verse that way. But he did. What does it imply? What's going on there? That's a, an interesting verse. Let me read it one more time, just in case the listener hasn't thought about this before. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. It is intriguing, and it is surprising, at least for our mindset. I think without the preacher to the Hebrews under the inspiration of the Spirit teaching me this, I would have put it just the opposite, that the only way to get a change in the priesthood is to have a change in the law first. Because as he's been implying throughout here, and we'll make even more explicit later on, the way you decide under the old system, the way you decide who will be the next high priest is you look at the principle of genealogy. He has to be able to trace his line back to the family of Aaron and ultimately the tribe of Levi. So you'd think to have a different priest, you necessarily need to have that law changed first. But his argument is no, the new priest changes the law. And again, when you begin to circle out in Hebrews, it's not only that there's a new priest who changes the law of how priests are to be appointed. That is clearly true. This new priest is appointed by God's divine oath, and he holds his priesthood eternally, as we'll probably talk about in a few minutes. But it's not only that principle of appointment for priesthood, but it begins to change other things. The new priest means that there is a new way of sacrifice, a a once-for-all sacrifice of himself, not of bulls and goats. And actually, you could even take it a step further, because as we've begun to see in chapter 2, and he'll point out again in chapter 10, the changes even begin to affect the civil law, the the penalties of the civil law, because in 2 and 10, he argues that there were severe penalties 
for those who violated the law given through Moses. But now we're in a situation that those severe penalties are, in a sense, even transcended because there are more severe penalties for abandoning the mediator of the new covenant and turning away from the covenant community, that those civil penalties were really faint shadows. He uses that with sacrifice, but I think he would be okay with our applying it. Faint shadows of the consequences of turning away from Christ in unbelief. So the law has changed in a variety of ways, and all because the priest, as promised in the psalm, the priest has changed, and everything depends on him. You're listening to Office Hours. From Westminster Seminary, California. The law works for the priesthood. The law serves the priesthood. It serves the sacrificial ceremonial ministry rather than the reverse. When he says law, what do you think he means by that? And there's a lot of debate in New Testament scholarship today, as you well know, about the meaning of law in Paul's writing. What do you think it means here in this context? I think he's referring to the law in terms of the system of worship, cleansing, access to the presence of God. But it's somewhat bigger than that, because in the next chapter, he's going to quote a lengthy quote from Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. And that looks back more broadly than simply the regulations related to the sanctuary. Although, again, for Hebrews, those are central. It's the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai that they broke. Their defect was, in a sense, the defect in the Sinaitic covenant in that it could command obedience, but the law in itself could not produce the obedience it commanded. And so we need a new covenant. It's focused centrally in Hebrews on the sacrificial system, on the priesthood, on the sanctuary, but it seems to spread out beyond that. And that's why I thought what he's doing in chapter 2 and 10 with respect to the even the penalties that would be imposed on violations of the law under the Mosaic Covenant is really an anticipation of something that is now transformed and escalated in a certain sense under the New Covenant. We could almost say, couldn't we, and I was toying with how to translate this, the ESV says change, metatithemi, could we say transformation of the law? And when he says law, he really means then, you seem to be suggesting more than just the 613 commandments, but the whole mosaic system, the whole economy administration of the covenant. A change, a transformation in the priesthood brings about a change or a transformation in the law. When I first encountered this, it suggested a number of interesting implications, and maybe we could take a few moments here before the break and explore some of these and see if we can't go from preaching to meddling. (laughs) That sounds like fun. Get ourselves into some trouble. I remember looking at some sort of traditional, classic, dispensational, biblical commentaries on this section, and they seem to go in a certain direction. And then I remember looking at some theonomic and reconstructionist writers, and they took this passage in a particular direction. I can imagine this has implications for the way Protestants might want to think about the claims of the Roman communion. So walk us through some of these things and and help us navigate this. So you've set three landmines for me. That's my job. Exactly. I'm just the host. I get to ask the questions and you get to answer the tough ones. Well, what comes to mind with respect to dispensationalism, at least classic dispensationalism, is its expectation in the future that there will be a millennium in which there will be a rebuilt temple and, again, an offering of animal sacrifices. When you look at that expectation and hope in the light of what Hebrews says about the absolute superiority of Jesus— 
and particularly of his sacrifice and of the heavenly sanctuary in which he's ministering, I think what immediately strikes you is that to think of those kinds of physical reestablishments of the ceremonial and sacrificial law in the future is really an expectation that from the point of view of Hebrews would be stepping backward in the progress of redemptive history. It would be a regress rather than a progress in redemptive history. So it's hugely problematic, it seems, in the light of the way Hebrews is saying, we're moved to something far better now, far better. Why go back? I mean, in a certain sense, that's what the first century Hebrew Christians who received this letter sermon when, as I've mentioned earlier, and I think we've agreed, probably the temple was still standing. That's what they were tempted to do. It was still a possibility for them to go back And Hebrews says, don't do that. We have something infinitely better now, something that's far more effective in bringing you to God. So that's my first shot in terms of dispensationalism. I think evangelicals who have been raised in dispensationalism would be surprised to learn that the system that they learned is unintentionally subversive of the once-for-all finality of the work of Christ. I'm sure they don't think of it that way. But from the point of view of Hebrews, with the strong emphasis on the once-for-all work of Christ, then to go back to the types and shadows unintentionally suggests that perhaps there's more that's needed than the once-for-all. And with that, we'll take a break. And when we come back, you can dodge the second two sets of landmines on theonomy and the Roman communion right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 8474 Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. During the break, we were talking about the surprising connections between dispensationalism and the Roman view of the reinstituted sacrifices. And you were making the point that for dispensationalists, these sacrifices are not propitiatory, they are memorial. They are, in a sense, again, what's envisioned in a future millennium would be animal sacrifices that look back to the sacrifice of Christ. Which then gets us to the next landmine, and that would be the Roman view of transubstantiation and the elements in communion. Having been consecrated and ostensibly transubstantiated, there is made by the priest who turns his back on the congregation a memorial sacrifice. And so now we have this very interesting and quite unexpected point of contact, and both of them seem to be at odds with the message of the finality and once-for-allness superiority of Hebrews. Exactly. Hebrews emphasizes so strongly that Christ's sacrifice is once-for-all, that it is completed. 
And yet Rome introduces this idea that whenever the Mass is offered, whenever, as you say, transubstantiation has occurred, that there is, in some sense, a re-offering, a re-sacrifice of Christ, or a participation in some sort of eternal sacrifice of Christ, which then tends to compromise the historical, concrete reality of what Christ did once for all on the cross. And to distinguish it from dispensationalism, in the Roman understanding of this memorial sacrifice. It's not purely memorial. It's also said to be propitiatory, and that's their explicit teaching in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for example, which simply is reaffirming the dogmas and the decrees that were issued at the Council of Trent in the 16th century. And so there you have a notion of something a priest is doing today that actually has the effect of turning away divine wrath and making a payment for sins. Exactly. And that, in a sense, theologically is even more profoundly troublesome than the dispensational expectation that in the millennium memorial animal sacrifices will be offered again because it compromises in an even more profound way what Hebrew says about the once for all effectiveness of Christ's death to perfect the worshipers who come to God in him, to consecrate us, to make us acceptable, to wash us clean so that we can be in the presence of the Father. And with regard to perfection, before we move on, it just occurs to me that at least in the case of the Roman communion, they seem to be suggesting that Jesus' death is inceptive, but not perfection, which is another way in which it's difficult to reconcile the claims of the Roman communion with the pretty explicit teaching of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews wants us to think that Jesus didn't die to make salvation possible for those who do their part which is the general theme of covenant gnomism, Hebrews wants us to think that Jesus died to accomplish redemption, and it's being administered in the covenant community. And that's why you ought not to turn away and go back to Moses. Yes, agreed. (laughs) Okay. How does this section help us to think through the claims of theonomy and reconstructionism relative to the abiding validity of the Mosaic civil law in exhaustive detail? I think it is helpful because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he starts at the center of his concern, which has to do with Christ as the new priest who transforms those issues that we would think of narrowly as worship and atonement, his priesthood, the sanctuary in which he serves, the heavenly sanctuary, the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that he offers. But then as you move out in Hebrews, you begin to see also, again, in chapters 2 and 10 most explicitly, that it's really the whole way that God relates to his covenant people that has undergone a transformation with the coming of Christ. And 2 and 10 in particular, where he references the specific penalties associated with violating the Mosaic covenant. And then in both of those places, he, in a sense, escalates them. If they did not escape when they set aside the word that God delivered to Moses through angels, this is chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And again in chapter 10, those who set aside the law of Moses died on the testimony of one or two witnesses. And then he begins to talk, as he had done also in chapter 6, about turning away from Christ as as showing contempt for Jesus, his sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit, and therefore having far more severe consequences. So he's really giving us a window on the covenant shift that has taken place that affects also the structure of the covenant people in terms of the sanctions and the penalties associated with violating the covenant. 
So if the law that now is said to rest on the priesthood includes the civil penalties, the the civil legislation in the 613 commandments, if it rests on the priesthood and the priesthood has changed and thereby changing the law, then we ought to think then with, for example, Westminster Confession chapter 19, section 4, that the civil law has expired with the Mosaic economy generally because it's been fulfilled by Christ. And not to say that there are no implications of that law. Certainly there are. But to talk about the reinstitution of the civil law after the priesthood has changed seems to miss the effect of what Hebrews is saying here in verses 11 through 14. I think you're exactly right. I think it is true that today civil governments that are not God's covenant people, and that's true of every civil government, none of them are are God's covenant people the way Israel was, may have things to learn from all those laws that God gave to Moses for the ordering of Israel. But from the standpoint of what Hebrews is thinking about, God dealing with his covenant people, the fulfillment of the Mosaic penalties and sanctions comes in Christ bearing our penalty on the cross, but it also then works its way out in terms of the responsibility of the church to exercise discipline, and ultimately it is a preview of the fact that God's wrath burns against those who break covenant, and so it's a preview of final judgment as well. It's interesting here that the pastor to the Hebrews is facing apostasy, and he doesn't invoke the civil magistrate. He deals with this in a purely ecclesiastical way. Precisely, because he has, as the Apostle Paul would say, weapons that are far more powerful than the weapons that can hurt our flesh. They're the powerful weapons of the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. And the discipline that maintains the purity of the covenant community is the discipline of church discipline and the persuasion and and if necessary, the pronouncement on the part of the leaders of the church that someone's path of behavior or belief even is contrary to a believable profession of faith in Christ. And verse 13 seems to head in this direction. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Getting back to your genealogical principle, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And nevertheless, Hebrews is making this great argument that he is a priest but he doesn't fit the paradigm that we might expect. Exactly. And I suspect that the preacher to the Hebrews knows that this is an objection that has been raised by his readers, his hearers, unbelieving relatives, perhaps. How can you go to Jesus for the atonement of your sins? He's not qualified to offer a sacrifice because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the family of Aaron. And the author says, that's obviously true. I'm not going to deny that. That's absolutely true. But remember, and here's where he's on his trajectory right toward Psalm 110, verse 4. Remember, that psalm announces a different order of priesthood that is specifically tied to kingship. It is the king of of righteousness, Melchizedek, who is the king of peace, the king of Salem, who is now the priest who actually, as we saw in Genesis 14, is superior to Abraham, stands between Abraham and the Lord in receiving tithes and blessing, and therefore superior to Levi and Aaron. And so already our scriptures, our Hebrew scriptures, are testifying to a better priest who is a king priest. So he says in verse 15, this becomes even more evident 
when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, so there it's absolutely explicit, but by the power of an indestructible life, or verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so there he goes to the center of Psalm 110, uh, verse 4. Jesus' superiority is more evident he says, because Melchizedek was the precursor to Jesus. Now, I know this is something we've touched on, but the listener may not have heard every episode. So quickly go back over that for us again, how Jesus is superior to Melchizedek and how Melchizedek works for Jesus. Well, as we saw in the opening verses of this chapter, he presents Melchizedek in the context of the first appearance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, the first of the two, Genesis 14, as coming, as it were, in a sense, out of the blue from the standpoint of what Moses has been doing in Genesis. He's a worshiper of the true and living God. He's acknowledged by Abraham as, in some sense, a superior priestly mediator to Abraham because Abraham brings those gifts and receives the blessing from the Lord Most High through Melchizedek. But Melchizedek is introduced in this first book of Moses, which is titled The Book of the Generations, over and over again we read that, without a genealogy, without any indication of who his father was, who his mother was, when he was born, when he died. He's presented almost timelessly, and Hebrews says he's made like the Son of God in the way Scripture presents him. There's that theme of eternal priesthood that's introduced there that shows that he's superior to Aaron and all of Aaron's sons, and therefore becomes the preview of another and better priesthood as that other Old Testament reference, Psalm 110, will make more explicit. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And he doesn't leave it just in the abstract, but he goes to a concrete particular, as Cornelius Vintil might say. And the concrete particular here is, as he says, the power of an indestructible life. What does that mean? And explain how, on that principle of the power of an indestructible life, the pastor is able to turn what some might call antinomianism into evidence for the superiority of Christ's priesthood to Aaron's and Levi's. He's pulling out that implication of Christ's indestructible life from the psalm itself, which he's about to quote in verse 17, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And what he's doing really is talking about the effects, particularly of Jesus' resurrection, because he knows very well that Jesus became our human brother, took to himself our flesh and blood, so that by his death he might atone once for all for our sins. But he also knows that Jesus now lives forever. He references, of course, in the benediction at the very end, the fact that God led up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And it's that resurrection life in which Christ now offers prayer on our behalf and the evidence of his once-for-all suffering on our behalf and the Father's presence in heaven that shows that he is indeed a priest whose tenure in the priesthood lasts forever and ever, who never needs to be replaced because he will never face death. And therefore, because he ever lives, he ever intercedes for us. To run ahead a few sentences here. All the priests that had hitherto served the Lord, some faithfully, some unfaithfully, they had all died. And when they had died, they'd been put in the ground. And after they'd been put in the ground, they stayed there. So true. <laughs> but that's huge, yeah, right? Yeah. Because one of the things that the people need to understand in order to know why they shouldn't go back is they're going back to a system where the priests die and stay dead. They need to stick with Jesus, the high priest, the greater than Melchizedek priest, 
because he has an indestructible life, because they did kill him. He did die. They did put his body in the ground, but it didn't stay there. Precisely. This reminds me of that comment by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, when he's about to enter into and discuss Psalm 16. You did not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter introduces that by saying death could not hold him, essentially. Death had no right, no claim on Jesus, because even though he went to death for the guilt of his people, he had no personal individual guilt, and therefore death had no right to hold him. And hence, Peter begins to speak about the resurrection as the fulfillment of Psalm 16. So that's absolutely true. And once again, then, Moses works for Jesus. All of that stuff was never intended to be understood ultimately in isolation from Jesus. Jesus did come to fulfill it, but all of that was given by God the Son, we can say, at Sinai to us in order that when he came, we might see him for who and what he is. And when we properly understand that, it makes us look not to Moses, not to reinstitution, not to bringing back the civil law, not to memorial propitiatory sacrifices, but to the once for all final sacrifice that leads us into the heavenly temple and behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies where we are with the priest. We don't need someone to turn his back on us and to make sacrifices for us because it's already done. Amen. We'll close with this episode by looking just for a minute at 717 because it's an interesting use of Psalm 110 verse 4, which is, as I read Psalm 110, that's the center of the psalm, because it's the only verse, verse 4, that doesn't have a parallel in Psalm 110. Verse 1 is parallel to verse 5, verse 2 is parallel to verse 6, and verse 3, at least in some ways, is parallel to verse 7, which picks up on the second half of verse 3. And the listener will have to go and take the Bible and look at it and see. You'll see this to be the case. But verse 4 isn't repeated And so we know that's the center of Psalm 110. And arguably, Psalm 110 is at the center of what Hebrews is trying to get at here. And so it seems like this is at the core of his concern when he, in verse 17, quotes this verse and says, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And again, as we always try to do in these episodes, what should the Christian take away from this use of Psalm 110 verse 4? And and how should this truth that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, how should that encourage him? We need to remember that the one about whom the preacher is speaking here, this one who is now priest forever by the power of his indestructible life, is one who has, as he's shown us in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, who has entered into our human experience, who has undergone the tests and the trials, who can be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. He's not a distant priest from us, who stands close to God, but aloof from us. But he is also one who is close to God on our behalf. And so as he ever lives to pray for us, as the preacher is going to go on to say, we have one who understands us and at the same time is constant in his prayer and his intercession for his people, who never will be replaced, whose prayers are always effective, for his purpose and the Father's good purpose. And so we have tremendous confidence that human pastors, elders, friends may pray for us for a time 
uh, sometimes we become a little forgetful to pray as we should for one another. But we have one praying for us who prays with infinite wisdom and infinite compassion, and he prays for us without interruption. He's constantly praying for us. And that should greatly hearten us as we come to God with the weakness of our own prayers and sense how much we need the grace that only God can give us. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.